Obsessive compulsive disorder is not a disease that bothers. It is a disease that tortures. From author J.J. Keeler. Marcy Barberth Ferry says this of OCD, quote, It can look like still waters on the outside while a hurricane is swirling in your mind. And this poem is by the poet Aditi, published in April 2017, and it's simply titled OCD. OCD is not all about remembering the freckles on her cheeks or telling her I love you repetitively. OCD is waking up at two in the morning after you have spent hours trying to delude yourself into thinking that your hands are clean only to end up in your washroom trying to rub your skin off all because a stranger touched me on the sidewalk a month ago. OCD is being in an abusive relationship with yourself. Your logic won't let you give in, but like a desperate lover, your OCD won't let you go. So you keep swinging, tick-tock, to and fro, like the broken clock in the storeroom you can't get yourself to throw out because it belonged to your nana. OCD is not finally finding a peace of moment when he looks at you, but it is biting your teeth into your lips, trying to hold in the cringe when he carelessly wipes his greasy hands on the napkin. Don't complain, don't complain, you mutter to yourself as you throw a hand sanitizer his way. Please don't leave me. OCD is rearranging the picture frames on the shelf for the 15th time a day because last time your brother interrupted you and so you might as well start again. OCD is the worry in your mama's eyes as she invites the guests to show them your room while she keeps throwing you cautious glances as someone touches your books. I'm sorry, Ma. I can't help it. OCD is reading the same line again and again. A part of your brain asks you why since you got it right the first time. You don't know why, but you keep doing it just to be sure. Check the door if it's locked properly before sleeping. Once, twice, thrice, till it's morning already and it's time to wake up. Another sleepless night. OCD is all these fuzzy voices mixed around with the signals from your brain telling you that your life will fall apart if, just for this once, you do anything different. Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, OCD, that is what we are addressing today. Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, and here is what OCD is like for Tony Neville. She says, quote, it's like being controlled by a puppeteer. Every time you try and just walk away, he pulls you back. Are you sure the stove is off and everything is unplugged? Back up we go. Are you sure your hands are as clean as they can get? Back you go. Are you sure the doors are securely locked? Back down we go. How many people have touched this object? Wash your hands again. We 
are together in this great adventure, Interior Integration for Catholics, this podcast. We are journeying together, and I am really excited and honored to be able to spend this time with you. I am Dr. Peter Melanowski, clinical psychologist, passionate Catholic, and together we are taking on the tough topics that matter to you. We bring the best of psychology and human formation and we harmonize the best of psychology and human formation with the perennial truths of the Catholic faith. This podcast, Interior Integration for Catholics, is part of our broader outreach, Souls and Hearts, bringing the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and to the rest of the world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. Today, We are getting into obsessions and compulsions. We're going into a really deep dive to understand what's happening with these experiences. Now, I know many of you were expecting me to discuss scrupulosity today. That's what I had said I was going to do in the last podcast. And you know what? I was expecting that I would be discussing scrupulosity today as well. But... What I found out is that in order to really have that discussion of scrupulosity, in order for that discussion of scrupulosity to be well-founded, we need to get a deep understanding of obsessions and compulsions first. I need to bring you up to speed on obsessions and compulsions before we get into scrupulosity, and there is a lot to know. So we're going to do this right. We're going to take our time. I'm going to ask you to be patient with me. There is so much material on obsessions and compulsions that I couldn't just put it into a little sidebar in the podcast. So the questions we will be covering today... What are we going to be doing? We're going to be, first of all, getting into definitions. What are obsessions and compulsions? And what is obsessive-compulsive disorder? What are the different types of obsessions and compulsions, the different forms that obsessions and compulsions can take? And this is really important. What is the experience of OCD like? We got a taste of that in the intro with that poetry and with those quotes, but we're going to get into that more deeply as well. What do those who have really suffered from OCD, what do they have to tell us about their experience? Then we're going to get into who suffers from obsessions and compulsions. How common is OCD? What are the risk factors? Why do obsessions and compulsions keep going? What What's that cycle like according to the secular experts? And then we'll talk about how we overcome obsessions and compulsions. How do we how do we resolve them? What does the secular literature say are the best treatments? We're going to talk about medication. We're also going to talk about a particular kind of therapy called exposure and response prevention, which is seen as the best, most efficacious treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder. We're also going to talk about alternatives to those traditional or conventional treatments. We really want to make sure that we're not looking at obsessive compulsive disorder just as a descriptive diagnosis. We want there to be a prescriptive conceptualization that gives a direction for healing of resolving obsessions and compulsions. We don't want to just do symptom management. So those are all the areas that we're going to be getting into. So let's let's kick it off by talking about definitions. 
definitions. For those of you that follow this podcast regularly, you know how important it is to me that we define our terms. So what are obsessions? So we're going to go straight to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, 5th edition, the DSM-5. This is the the catalog of psychiatric disorders put out by the American Psychiatric Association. It's the most used diagnostic classification system in the field of psychology. And obsessions, according to the DSM-5, are, quote, recurrence and persistent thoughts, urges, or impulses that are experienced at some time during the disturbance as intrusive and unwanted and that in most individuals cause marked anxiety or distress. The individual attempts to ignore or suppress such thoughts, urges, or images, or to neutralize them with some other thought or action, for example, by performing a compulsion, end quote. All right, so obsessions, they're recurrent, they're persistent, they're thoughts, urges, or impulses, and they're seen as unwanted, intrusive. They cause anxiety. They cause distress. They are not pleasurable. And author Paul Rudnick, he gives a, a sense of how these are involuntary when he writes, my compulsive thoughts aren't even thoughts. They're absolute certainties and obeying them isn't a choice. Right? So for him, right, it doesn't feel like there's a choice. The last part of this is that the individual works to neutralize the obsession with another thought or a compulsion, right? So there's something that has to happen to try to calm down the anxiety resulting from the obsession. Here's a definition of obsession from the International OCD Foundation. They they define obsessions as follows. Quote, obsessions are thoughts, images, or impulses that occur over and over again and feel outside the person's control. Individuals with OCD do not want to have these thoughts and find them disturbing. In most cases, people with OCD realize that these thoughts don't make any sense. Obsessions are typically accompanied by intense and uncomfortable feelings such as fear, disgust, doubt, or a feeling that things have to be done in a way that is, quote, just right, end quote. In the context of OCD, obsessions are time-consuming and get in the way of important activities the person values, end quote. And one of the things that I want to point out in this definition is that these thoughts don't make any sense. They don't seem to make any sense often to the person. Most of the time, the individual with Uh, Obsessions recognizes that there's something off about these. Let's go to common obsessions. I'm drawing from four sources to, to discuss what common obsessions are. The primary article that I went with was an article entitled, What is OCD? And that was on the International OCD Foundation. It was on their website. I also used a WebMD article entitled, How Do I Know If I Have OCD? by Danny Bonvisuto from February 19th, 2020. I used a few things from northpointrecovery.com, their blog, and the blog entry was, What Types of OCD Are There? Get the Breakdown Here. That was a 
put out on May 3rd, 2019 by the North Point staff. And then one more was an article entitled Common Types of OCD, Subtypes, Their Symptoms, and the Best Treatment by Patrick Carey, dated July 6th, 2021 on treatmyocd.com. Okay, so we're going to look at some major categories of OCD obsessions, right? What kinds of obsessions? Well, there can be contamination obsessions, obsessions around losing control, obsessions around harm, obsessions around relationships, obsessions around unwanted sexual thoughts, obsessions related to perfectionism, obsessions about sexual orientation, obsessions about being embarrassed or shamed in public situations, obsessions around getting a non-communicable disease such as cancer, and obsessions that are superstitious ideas about unlucky numbers or particular colors, and then there can be religious obsessions, and that's another word for scrupulosity. So let's go through these a little bit, um, a little bit more slowly, right? So the first kind of contamination obsession involves body fluids, blood, urine, saliva, feces. I went to the public restroom. I know I got somebody's urine on my hands. It's just an obsession, something I can't stop thinking about. That's the first one. Germs is another one. Germs, especially for communicable diseases. Somebody may be afraid to shake hands, worried about catching gonorrhea, for example, right? Contamination by environmental contaminants like radiation or asbestos. Contamination by household chemicals, cleaners, solvents. Uh, contamination by dirt, right? And here is, here's, an, here's a quote from author Bethany Pierce that kind of describes what an obsession might sound like. She writes, If you put the wrong foods in your body, you are contaminated and dirty and your stomach swells. Then the voice says, why did you do that? Don't you know better? Ugly and wicked, you are disgusting to me. Contamination one. So it's the first one. The second set of obsessions are about losing control. And that could be giving in to an impulse to harm yourself. You know, the idea of, hey, I could jump in front of this bus right now. Uh, that's an impulse to harm self, fear of giving into that impulse, fear of acting on an impulse to harm somebody else, right? What if I stabbed my nephew with this knife, right? That could, that could be a thought, an obsession that somebody starts to ruminate about, you know, be, becomes very distressing to a person. Uh, similarly, fear of violent or horrific images in your mind, the fear of shouting out insults or obscenities in public places, the fear of stealing things, right? These are all obsessions under the broad category of losing control. The third is harm. And this involves a fear of being responsible for some terrible event. You know, somehow... I caused a fire at the office building. I left my tape recorder in there. Uh, the batteries might have shorted out, might have caused a fire in my desk that spread to the whole building, that kind of thing, being responsible for a terrible event. Or the fear of harming others because you weren't careful enough, right? It was a windstorm last week. It blew a, a limb off a tree. I left it in my front yard. Maybe one of the neighborhood kids will trip over it and break their leg, right? Fears of harms, obsessive thinking about harm. 
The next category is relationships. This could be doubts about a romantic partner, right? Is she the right one for me? Should I really be with her? Is there a better one that I'm supposed to find and that I won't find if I stay with her? I mean, what if we're not meant to be together, but we wind up marrying each other? Then what? Right? Those kinds of ideas. Or doubts about our, uh, a partner in another way, right? Is my, is my girlfriend faithful to me? Is my fiance faithful to me? Right? So that's, that's the fourth one, right? So we've got obsessions under the broad categories of contamination, losing control, harm, and relationships. We've covered those. Now we're into unwanted sexual thoughts. These could be forbidden or perverse sexual thoughts or images. Could be sexual obsessions involving children, involving incest. It could be obsessions about aggressive sexual behavior towards others. So that's an off, that's often a common one. Catholic circles unwanted sexual thoughts. Then there can also be obsessions uh, related to perfectionism, and these could include a concern about evenness or exactness, about symmetry, a need for things to be in their place, might be thoughts about having to arrange things in a particular way before I leave home, could be a concern with a need to know or to remember particular details. There could be obsessions around an inability to decide whether to keep this particular thing or to discard it. And you, you saw that in the opening poem where Aditi was trying to decide whether she should discard the clock that belonged to her nana. There could be obsessions around losing things, fears around making a mistake, and there could be a need to ensure that your action is, quote, just right, end quote. So there could be obsessions around, I need to start this email over, something isn't right with the wording. So that's, that's another one, obsessions around perfectionism. Then there can be obsessions around your sexual orientation, right? Am I gay? So a man may realize that he noticed another man uh, out by the swimming pool. You know, the, there could be obsessions around, oh, I noticed this other man. Does that mean I'm gay? Am I gay? Am I not gay? It can be obsessions about sexual orientation, sexual attraction. There can be obsessions about being embarrassed or shamed in public situations. can be obsessions around unlucky numbers or certain colors, superstitious ideas, and then religious obsessions that go under the broad category of scrupulosity, which we'll talk a lot more about in the next episode, concerns about offending God, concerns about blasphemy, concerns about right and wrong, morality, sin, those kinds of things. We'll get into that in a lot more detail. So that's common obsessions, contamination, losing control, harm, relationships, unwanted sexual thoughts, uh, perfectionism, sexual orientation, being shamed or embarrassed in public, superstitious ideas, and scrupulosity. Let's turn to compulsions, because that's the other side of this coin. Obsessions and compulsions usually go together. The DSM-5, the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual 5, define compulsions as, quote, repetitive behaviors such as hand-washing, ordering, checking, or mental acts such as praying, counting, repeating words silently that the individual feels driven to perform in response to an obsession 
or according to rules that must be applied rigidly. The behaviors or mental acts are aimed at preventing or reducing anxiety or distress or preventing some dreaded event or situation. However, these behaviors or mental acts are not connected in a realistic way with what they are designed to neutralize or prevent or are clearly excessive. Most people with OCD have both obsessions and compulsions, according to the DSM-5. And similarly, from the International OCD Foundation, they define compulsions as, quote, the second part of obsessive compulsive disorder. These are repetitive behaviors or thoughts that a person uses with the intention of neutralizing, counteracting, or making their obsessions go away. People with OCD realize that this is only a temporary solution, but without a better way to cope, they rely on the compulsion as a temporary escape. Compulsions can also include avoiding situations that trigger obsessions. Compulsions are time-consuming and get in the way of important activities the person values. End quote. So, in teasing out what's important, these behaviors are repetitive. They are aimed at preventing or reducing anxiety. So the compulsions have a function. They have an anxiety-reducing function. They neutralize or counteract or make the obsessions go away. They are all about reducing the intensity around the obsession. It's about trying to get rid of the obsession, right? They can also be about avoiding situations that bring up obsessive thinking. And the other thing is that they have to be time consuming. They have to be something that gets in the way of the person's life. So there are, again, common compulsions in OCD. And I'm going to draw from the same four sources that I drew the obsessions from in getting the different categories of compulsions in obsessive compulsive disorder. So there are washing and cleaning compulsions. There are checking compulsions. There are repeating compulsions. There are mental compulsions. And then there are putting things in order or arranging things that can be compulsive. There can be telling, asking, or confessing compulsions and then avoiding compulsions, right? So let's go through these and get some examples, right? So washing and cleaning. Washing hands might be the maybe the most common or at least the most known of the compulsive behaviors. Washing hands excessively, washing them in a particular way. It can also include excessive showering, bathing, teeth brushing, grooming, or it can be cleaning items or objects excessively. That's all under the washing and cleaning category. Checking compulsions include checking that you did not or will not harm anyone, checking that you did not or will not harm yourself, checking to make sure that nothing terrible happened, right? Checking to make sure that you did not make a mistake, and checking specific parts of your body, these checking behaviors. Right, wanting to avoid harm, usually. Repeating compulsions include rereading passages or rewriting passages, repeating routine activities such as going in and out of doors repeatedly or getting up and down from chairs, repeating body movements such as tapping or touching or blinking, 
And it also includes repeating activities in multiples, right? For example, doing things three times because three seems to be a number that is good or right or safe or appropriate. And so that's the third one, the repeating compulsion. So we've had washing and cleaning, checking, repeating, and then the fourth one is mental compulsions. This is where people mentally review events in order to try to prevent harm to oneself or to others or to prevent terrible consequences. It could include praying, again, to prevent harm or to prevent bad consequences. could include counting while performing a task with the with the uh, goal of ending on a number that is good, right, or safe. It could also include canceling behaviors or undoing behaviors, replacing bad words with good words in your thoughts in order to try to cancel out the negative aspects of thoughts. All of those fall under the area of mental compulsions. Then putting things in order, rearranging things until they feel right, until there's a perfect symmetry, that's the next one. And then there's also this idea of trying to get reassurance by telling people things or asking people things or by confessing various things to other people and then avoiding situations that might trigger obsessions. That can be another whole area of compulsions. Now, as we talked about, obsessions and compulsions go together. There's this vicious cycle of OCD that's described at helpguide.org in their article entitled Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. So there could be an obsessive thought, right? Like, I could stab my nephew with this knife, right? That's a harm, that's a harm obsession. And that brings up anxiety. That would be a terrible thing to happen. I can't let that happen. I don't want that to happen. I love my nephew, Right? So then there can be the compulsion, the compulsion of locking all the knives away and then checking to make sure they are all accounted for when your sibling and her family are visiting. Right, So when your nephew comes to visit with his family, you're checking the knives to make sure that no knife is out, that you don't have a knife somewhere on your person. There's no knife that could be easy to grab for you to somehow carry out that uh, obsession, that obsessional thought about stabbing your nephew. And when you've checked and when you've seen that all the knives are where, they're sh where they quote should be, end quote, there can be this temporary relief. All the knives are there. And that relief is absolutely critical to understanding this cycle. Now, Marty M. Berlinger, she puts it this way, quote, a physical sensation crawls up my arm as I avoid compulsions. But if I complete the compulsion, the world resets itself for a moment, like everything will be just fine, but only for a moment. End quote. So there is this reward that happens when a person with OCD does the compulsive behavior. They get a brief sense of relief, a temporary sense of relief. Same kind of thing that can happen with uh, what if I just ran somebody over, right? The idea of, hey, what, what if I ran somebody over? You're driving down the road. What if I just ran somebody over, right? Anxiety comes up, and then there can be the compulsion to go back and drive over the, uh, the route that you took in order to make sure that there are no bodies on the road, that you didn't hit anyone, 
this need to kind of check that out. And when that's completed, then there can be this brief sense of, okay, I can relax. But again, it doesn't last, right? So that's the cycle of how this operates. So according to the DSM-5, you need to have the following diagnostic criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. You need to have the presence of obsessions or compulsions or both. The obsessions or compulsions must be time consuming, for example, taking more than an hour per day, or they need to be causing clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. The obsessive compulsive symptoms are not attributable to the physiological effects of a substance. So they can't be about medications or can't be because you're using drugs or because you have a medical condition that causes the, the experiences. And it can't be better explained by some other mental disorder. And one of the things that comes out in the, in the DSM-5 is whether or not there is good or fair insight, and if there's good or fair insight, the person recognizes that the obsessive compulsive disorder beliefs are definitely or at least probably not true, or that they at least may or may not be true, right? If there's poor insight, they usually look at the obsessions and say, yeah, they're probably true. And if insight is absent, then the person's convinced that the obsessive, that the obsessive beliefs are true. That's about 4% of, of people with OCD have that degree of absent insight. Well, let's get into a little bit more of what the internal experience of OCD is like. What is it like to be under the pressure of these obsessions, feeling compelled toward these compulsions, what is that like? So there was a poem that I want to read to you, uh, and the author goes by forti.no, so F-O-R-T-I dot N-O, and the poem goes as follows. Dear Obsess, 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 Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, are you really sure we need to keep checking and washing and checking and washing, and checking, and washing. My hands are cracked. I dread the feeling of water, but I can't wash away everything that you make me think. I am tired, but too scared to fight back. I'm afraid you'll attack me. The planes will fall from the sky and take everything that I have ever loved with them. Dear obsessive compulsive disorder, you cannot sleep until I have checked every single pair of shoes next to my bed, the boots, then the sneakers, then the slides, the boots, then the sneakers, then the slides, the boots, sneakers, slides. How many times do I have to re-repeat, repeat your rituals so that you'll stop crying over irrational situations that haven't even happened yet? How many cracks are in my hands? How many thoughts are in my head? How many things will go wrong if I don't listen? They say, I'm so OCD, but they're actually saying, your disorder is my quirk. My disorder. My, 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 my dis. My disorder is not your quirk. 
It is not straightening the papers on your desk because you don't like the clutter. It is not cleaning your room when you have a week's worth of laundry laying around the floor. It is sitting in the corner of the counselor's office waiting for the bad things to happen because some teacher didn't take me seriously when I said I needed to face West. How can you possibly understand when you don't have to take four napkins if it's a Wednesday or check the boots and the sneakers and the slides and the boots and the sneakers and the slides and, 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 dear obsessive compulsive disorder, please leave me alone. I'm so tired. And maybe if I stop checking to see if you're there, then you won't be. But that's not a risk I can take. There's kind of a, an interesting uh, little verbal picture given by Josie Eloy Franco. And Josie said, quote, ever seen inside out? With OCD, it's like doubt has its own control console, end quote. Kelly Hill described OCD as, quote, you lose time. You lose entire blocks of your day to obsessive thoughts or actions. I spend so much time finishing songs in my car before I can get out or redoing my entire shower routine because I lost count of how many times I scrubbed my left arm, end quote. Adam Walker Cleveland described his OCD as, begin quote, Imagine all your worst thoughts as a soundtrack running through your mind 24-7, day after day, end quote. And Cheryl Little Sutton said of OCD, quote, Picture standing in a room filled with flies and pouring a bottle of syrup over yourself. The flies constantly swarm about you, buzzing around your head and in your face. You swat and swat, but they keep coming. The flies are like obsessional thoughts. You can't stop them. You just have to fend them off. The swatting is like compulsions. You can't resist the urge to do it, even though you know it won't really keep the flies at bay more than for a brief moment. End quote. Let's look at who OCD most affects. What's the prevalence rates here? So according to the DSM-5, the 12-month prevalence rate in the U.S. for OCD is 1.2%. And that means that 12 out of every 1,000 people will experience obsessive-compulsive disorder in a given year. The lifetime prevalence is 2.3%. Is it's roughly double. So that means that about 2.3% of people will experience OCD, the actual disorder, at some point during their lives. International 12-month prevalence rates range from about 1.1 to 1.8, so it's pretty much in line with what we see in the U.S. Women tend to have a higher prevalence rate than men. Risk factors, according to the DSM-5, include temperamental factors, those people with greater internalizing systems who are more likely to turn inward and have internal symptoms, those that have higher negative emotionality and those who have greater behavioral inhibition, you know, more inhibitions around behaviors, they're likely to be at greater risk for OCD. Environmental factors include childhood physical abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and other stressful or traumatic events. 
there seems to be some kind of genetic disposition. If you look at identical twins, the concordance rates are 57%, which means if one identical twin has it, you're going to see it about 50%, 57% of the time with the other identical twin. With fraternal twins, the concordance rate is 22%. So when one fraternal twin has it, the other twin is like is going to have it about 22% of the time. There are some physiological aspects to this, and there have been associations with OCD, with dysfunction in the orbital frontal cortex of the brain, and also the anterior cingulate cortex and the striatum. All of those have been implicated with various physiological abnormalities with OCD. There's also some interesting evidence that streptococcal infections, that is, you know, strep throat, can precede the development of OCD symptoms in children. So with that, let's go to therapy. Now there's really one therapy that the outcome literature says stands head and shoulders above the rest when it comes to obsessive compulsive disorder. Obsessive compulsive disorder is generally known to be kind of treatment resistant to many treatments. So there have been a number of writers, authors, a number of clinicians who have discussed the difficulties of treating OCD. Back in the 1970s, this exposure and response prevention therapy, which is known as ERP, that that grew out of Stanley Rockman's work. Now, this is a type of behavioral therapy that exposes the person to situations designed to provoke or to stimulate their obsessions. All right, so we're intentionally causing the distress, the anxiety that leads to the urge to engage in the compulsion that gives the person the temporary relief. The goal of ERP or exposure and response prevention is to break that cycle of obsessions leading to anxiety, leading to compulsions, leading to temporary relief, rinse and repeat. Right? If you are exposed to your anxiety provoking stimulus and you have the obsession, but if you prevent the compulsive response, you don't get the temporary relief. The basic premise of ERP is that as individuals confront their fears and if they prevent themselves from engaging in their escape responses, eventually they will habituate to their anxiety and their anxiety will go down. All right, so the goal here in, e in ERP is to get used to the feelings of the obsessions. It's to get used to the anxiety without having to engage in the compulsive behavior this increases the person's capacity to handle the discomfort, to handle the distress, to handle the anxiety, and to no longer be reinforced by the temporary relief that the compulsion provides. That's what ERP is all about. And Patrick Carey writes that any behavior that engages with the obsession, for example, asking for reassurance or avoiding or ruminating, any behavior that engages with that obsession reinforces the obsession. So the point of ERP is to prevent 
those behaviors. And by preventing those behaviors, ERP teaches the person that he or she can tolerate distress without turning to their compulsions. And in that way, the idea is that ERP drains obsessions of their power. Right? So the essence of ERP is that individuals with OCD repeatedly confront the thoughts, images, objects, and situations that compose their obsessions, that make them anxious. Those are the things that they confront in a systematic fashion, and they keep themselves from performing their favored compulsive behaviors that they typically will use to reduce distress, to, to calm themselves, to reduce anxiety. And through this process, the individual is supposed to learn that there's nothing to fear and that obsessions no longer cause distress. And so with ERP, you make the choice to confront your anxiety and obsessions. You make the commitment to not give in, to not relapse into the compulsive behavior. And when you don't do that compulsive behavior, you'll actually eventually experience a drop in your anxiety levels. And this happens when you stay exposed enough and you prevent the compulsion enough to become habituated, what they call habituated. And then you learn, oh, okay, experientially, I know that this situation or this obsession is not going to cause harm. Now, this is a, this is a, a serious commitment, though, because a person has to f confront those obsessive thoughts relentlessly, right? It's not something that you can do a little bit of. It's something that has to be done uh, with this consistency, with this ongoing effort, right? So different types of exposure are used in this. It could be imaginal exposure where the person is asked to sort of mentally bring to mind the fear and the, and, and, and the situation that is, that is so uncomfortable that brings up the obsession. So if a person has, let's say, agoraphobia, which is a fear of being in open spaces or in crowded places, they might be imagining themselves at a football stadium, something like that, and they're, they're bringing up an, an, an image of this within their mind's eye, and that triggers the obsession, and then they can you know, prevent the response. There's also in vivo exposure, and with this kind of exposure, people go to real-life places to uh, address whatever scenario they're afraid of. So a person who obsesses about bridges falling down, or maybe themselves causing bridges to fall down, go out near bridges, go over bridges, and have, uh, and have the, f the fleeing response or the avoiding response be extinguished by preventing it by preventing it within within themselves. And now uh, we're also getting into virtual reality exposure where this person is placed in situations that probably seem to be real, three-dimensional and so forth, but they are fabricated through you know this visual stimulation. 
So Stephen Pence and his colleagues in a 2010 article in the American Journal of Psychotherapy entitled When Exposures Go Wrong, Troubleshooting Guidelines for Managing Difficult Scenarios that Arise in Exposure-Based Treatment for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder looked at what are the problems with ERP. And they identified five issues that can occur in therapy but haven't really been discussed that much. These are the five areas in which exposure and response prevention can go wrong, right? And the first is when clients fail to habituate to their anxiety. When they don't calm down, that can be a real problem with the ERP. The second one is when clients misjudge how much anxiety and exposure will actually cause. If it causes too much anxiety, they can be flooded with anxiety, leave their window of tolerance, and really become hyper-aroused. If there's too little anxiety, there's not enough there to actually uh, be curative. The third is when incidental exposures happen in session, and that can be when, for example, in doing an in vivo exposure to, say, dogs by getting out of the office and walking down the street and, you know, kind of coming across a dog, there might be some other thing that the person's afraid of that happens in that, that distracts them and kicks off that whole cycle, but not around dogs, but around some other type of feared event that they are ruminating about. Uh, sometimes clients will use mental or covert rituals that interfere with treatment. So these are secret compulsive behaviors that they're slipping in that the therapist is not noticing. Uh, and then it also can have a lot of difficulty when clients demonstrate a very high levels of anxiety sensitivity. In other words, they have a very difficult time tolerating even mild levels of anxiety. Stacy Smith at stacysmithcounseling.com stated that there can also be ERP failures when clients are utilizing safety behaviors. That's the that's those are those covert those covert compulsions that are flying below the radar of the therapist. Uh, not sitting with the anxiety till it dissipates because clients can distract themselves. Not working through all the irrational, unhelpful thoughts and not practicing it often enough. So I have some concerns about ERP. I'm not an ERP practitioner. I've never practiced ERP in the way the current protocols read. I have done various forms of exposure therapy in the past, but not ERP specifically. I've got some concerns about safety and security and concerns about flooding with anxiety. Uh, and those are echoed by other clinicians as well. Ben Bloom wrote this article called Inside the Revolutionary Treatment That Could Change Psychotherapy Forever, which was at elemental.medium.com, posted on July 21st, 2020. He said this about Robert Fox's experience of another person. Robert Fox is a therapist. We'll talk a little bit more about him later, but the quote goes like this. Robert Fox is haunted by a memory of a germophobic woman with OCD whom he met once while she was being hospitalized. As part of her ERP therapy, the therapists took her into the bathroom and had her wipe her hands over the toilet and sink and then rub them through her hair. She wasn't permitted to shower until the next morning. 
for somebody with germophobia, this this whole experience could be absolutely, absolutely trauma-inducing. And so I, you know, I again, there's there's ways in which this kind of ERP can be misapplied. Some people have had a lot of concerns about dropout rates. Um, there's actually been some studies that have looked at dropout rates, and the drop and a, a and a meta-analytic study that looked at dropout rates across 21 ERP studies with 1,400 participants. This was work by Clarissa Ong and her colleagues in the 2016 article in the Journal of Anxiety Disorders found only about 19% dropout rates. And a second study by Carly Johnco and her colleagues in the journal Depression and Anxiety across 11 randomized trials for youth found about a 10% dropout rate for ERP. So that was actually lower than I expected given how I understand the demands of ERP. But I'm also concerned that ERP doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't get to the root causes. It stays at the symptom level and it sees symptoms as nonsensical. You will often hear different people who suffer with with uh, obsessions and compulsions. They also believe that they're nonsensical. Like this quote from author Joe Wells who says, quote, one thing which I can't stress enough is that OCD is completely nonsensical and will not listen to reason. This is one of the most frightening things about having it. I know that to anyone I told, there are Salvador Dali paintings that make more sense, end quote. So there's often this assumption among clients or among people who suffer from OCD and also among therapists that it doesn't make any sense. I argue that it does, right? I argue that we shouldn't ignore the obsessions. We shouldn't ignore the fear. We shouldn't ignore the compulsions when it comes to their meaning. That fear is a response to something. Those obsessions are a response to something. Those compulsions are a response. And if we trace back the layers, if we go back to what the actual causes are, we can make sense of them. And what we're going to find ourselves at in the final analysis, when we get all the way back, most often is shame. A lot of times we have to go back through grief, we have to go back through anger, but when we get to the first cause of this on the natural level, we are usually finding ourselves dealing with a deep sense of shame. Shame is so important in the genesis of so many different kinds of psychological disorders. In obsessive compulsive disorder, that is all about symptoms. Obsessions are symptoms, compulsions are symptoms, and the fear that drives those, that's a symptom. It's a result of something that's a deeper cause. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a little bit. Let's talk about medications. All right, medications are very common treatments for obsessive compulsive disorder, and according to the International OCD Foundation, there are eight drugs that are typically prescribed that seem to have a good research to back them up. And those include fluvoxamine, which is Luvox, fluoxetine, which is Prozac, sertraline, which is Zoloft, paroxetine, which is Paxil, citalopram, which is Celexa, clomipramine, which is anafranil, acetylopram, which is Lexapro, and venlafoxine, which is Effexor. There's different dosages for those that the OCD Foundation generally says is necessary. Those doses 
have to be fairly high in order to touch OCD. Well, how do these medications work? And the OCD Foundation, the International OCD Foundation, has a fact sheet where it addresses this question, how do these medications work? And they respond to that question by saying, quote, It remains unclear as to how these particular drugs help OCD. The good news is that after decades of research, we know how to treat patients, even though we do not know exactly why our treatments work. We do know that each of these medications affects a chemical in the brain called serotonin. Serotonin is used by the brain as a messenger. If your brain does not have enough serotonin, then the nerves in your brain might not be communicating right. Adding these medications to your body can help boost your serotonin and get your brain back on track. End quote. All right, well, that's not very satisfying to me. This whole idea of it remains unclear as to how these particular drugs help OCD. I just, I just find that unsatisfying. And in discussing medication, I want to make it clear that I'm not a physician. I'm a psychologist. I do not have prescription privileges. And I don't give advice on medication choices or on dosages or anything like that. If you think that your medication is helping your OCD, I'm not going to argue with you about that. I don't want to try to dissuade anyone from taking medication for psychological issues if they think it's helping them. But here's the thing. So much of your thinking about medication depends on what you see as the cause of the problem. It makes sense to take medication if you think that obsessions and compulsions pop up because of chemical imbalances such as low levels of free serotonin in the brain. You take the medication to restore the chemical balance and reduce the symptoms. That would make a lot of sense. So many of the treatments for OCD, though, treat the obsessions and compulsions as meaningless, as irrational, as just the random epiphenomenon of consciousness, or just as nonsensical expressions of miswiring in the brain, or just the effects of poorly balanced neurochemicals in the brain, such as low serotonin. And so these approaches, like ERP and like medication therapy, that just target the obsessions and the compulsions for eradication, that seek to just vanquish those obsessions and compulsions, they result in multiple problems. I think it's a major, major mistake to just try to get rid of obsessions and compulsions, or any symptom for that matter, without attempting to understand what it's trying to tell us. Obsessions and compulsions are symptoms. They're symptoms. Obsessions and compulsions, as painful and as debilitating as they are for many people, those obsessions and compulsions are not the primary problem. They are the effects of the primary problem. Obsessions and compulsions happen late in the causal chain. I see meaning in every obsession. I see meaning in every compulsion. I see a message in every obsession. I see a message in every compulsion. And usually it's a cry for help. It's a signal of deeper distress. Now there can be cases in which a psychological problem can be purely or primarily organic. It could be due to a medical condition, you know, for example, due to head trauma that caused brain damage, right, that caused anxiety. Or it could be a brain tumor on the pituitary gland that disrupts your whole endocrine system that results in a mood swings. But most of the time, though, psychological symptoms 
have psychological causes. We want to really understand those psychological causes. As a Catholic psychologist, I want to move much further back in that causal chain. I want to address and resolve the underlying issues that give rise to those obsessions in the first place and start that cycle that we talked about of obsessions, anxiety and distress, leading to compulsions, leading to temporary relief, you know, that reinforces that whole pattern again. I want to get to what's kicking that whole thing off rather than just dealing with it at the level of the symptoms. Because dealing with it at the level of symptoms is just like cutting the leaves off a weed, right? I want to get down to the roots. That's how you're going to be better able to work through obsessions and compulsions. Now, at helpguide.org, there's a little self-help. Uh, actually, it's the best self-help thing I've found for um, the most complete self-help thing, I should say. Uh, I found for obsessive compulsive disorders and at helpguide.org and this article entitled obsessive compulsive disorder, they said, okay, you want to identify your triggers. You want to learn to resist OCD compulsions. You want to challenge obsessive thoughts. You want to create an OCD worry period. We'll talk about what that is. You want to create a tape of your OCD obsessions and intrusive thoughts. You want to reach out for support and you want to manage stress. Uh, by practicing mindful, by practicing relaxation techniques and so forth. And you want to engage in some lifestyle changes. So identifying triggers that can help you identify your, your you know, what, what sets you off. It helps you to anticipate your urges. They recommend that you can create this solid mental picture and make a mental note. You can tell yourself the window is now closed or I can see that the oven is turned off. And so when that urge to check comes up later, you're going to be able to relabel it as, quote, just an obsessive thought, end quote. All right, so learning to resist OCD compulsions, you repeatedly expose yourself to your OCD triggers. You can learn to resist the urge to complete your compulsive rituals. This is basically do-it-yourself ERP. They talk about building your fear ladder. So you start out at less scary things and you work your way up to more frightening things. Again, resisting the urge to do your compulsive behavior. They tell you that the anxiety is going to fade. You're not going to lose control or have a breakdown. You got to practice this. Right, challenging obsessive thoughts, right? Recognizing that thoughts are just thoughts. They encourage you to write down your obsessive thoughts, your compulsions, writing it all down will help you see how repetitive your obsessions are. Writing it hundreds of times will help it lose its power. Writing thoughts down is much harder work than simply thinking them. So your obsessive thoughts are likely to disappear sooner. That's the idea in this particular thing. You can challenge your obsessive thoughts. What's the evidence for this thought being true? What's a more positive or realistic way of looking at the situation? Have I confused thoughts with facts? What's the probability of what I'm scared of? What, what's the likelihood that that's actually going to happen? If the probability is low, what are more likely outcomes? Is the thought helpful? Is obsessing about it helpful? Or could it be harmful? And what would I say to a friend who had this thought? All right, so that's the, that's the, the third thing. So we have identifying triggers, resisting OCD compulsions, challenging obsessive thoughts, and then this creating an OCD worry period. 
So instead of suppressing obsessions or compulsions, you simply reschedule them. You pick a couple of 10-minute worry periods each day where you can just devote yourself to obsessing. And during your worry period, you focus only on the negative thoughts or urges. You don't try to correct them or anything like that. Um, when, When thoughts come up in your head, when worries come up in your head, obsessions come up in your head, write them down. Make sure that you postpone them until your worry period where you can engage with them directly. The next one is uh, creating a tape of your OCD obsessions or intrusive thoughts. You're going to take make a recording, focus on one specific thought or obsession, record it, recount the obsessive phrase, sentence, or story exactly as it came to mind, and play the tape back over to yourself for 45 minutes each day until listening to that obsession no longer causes you to feel highly distressed. Okay. And then... Reach out for support. They recommend staying connected to family and friends, maybe joining an OCD support group, manage your stress by quickly self-soothing and relieving anxiety symptoms when they come up. They encourage the practicing of relaxation techniques, including meditation and deep breathing and yoga and things like that. And they recommend lifestyle changes such as exercise, you know, regular exercise, getting enough sleep and avoiding alcohol and nicotine. Okay, well, you know, uh, I, you know, and I appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I like it when um, individuals are empowered to find things that are helpful. But when somebody's really struggling with OCD, again, I really question whether these self-help techniques are going to really be all that effective. Again, n- these don't really get to root causes, except perhaps the um, the whole period of kind of engaging with your uh, with your obsessions in a worry period, that might actually, you know, do some of that work. But I'm happy to say that we have an alternative. We have an alternative in working with obsessive compulsive disorder, and that is internal family systems. Now, that's not going to come as a surprise to those of you that have followed this podcast, right? You know, I talk about internal family systems quite a bit on this podcast. So, what is internal family systems? I'm gonna read this little summary by Theodore Blanchfield from an August 22nd, 2021 article on verywellmind.com, which is called What is Internal Family Systems Therapy? And she writes, Internal Family Systems or IFS is a type of therapy that believes we are all made up of several parts or subpersonalities. It draws from structural, strategic narrative and Bowenian types of family therapy. The founder, Dr. Richard Swartz, thought of the mind as an inner family and began applying techniques to individuals that he usually used with families. The underlying concept of this theory is that we all have several parts living within us that fulfill both healthy and unhealthy roles. Life events or trauma, however, can force us out of those healthy roles into extreme roles. The good news is that these internal roles are not static and can change with time and work. The goal of IFS therapy is to achieve balance within the internal system and to differentiate and elevate the self so that it can be an effective leader in the system, end quote. So these parts are separate, independently operating personalities within us, each with its own prominent needs, roles in our lives, emotions, body sensations, guiding beliefs, and assumptions. These parts have their typical thoughts, intentions, desires, attitudes, impulses, their interpersonal style, their worldview, and each part is going to have different ways of coping with what confronts it. You can find out a lot more 
about internal family systems in episode 71 of this podcast, where I go into describing it in much more detail. Now, there are two key IFS therapists that have done a lot of work on obsessive compulsive disorder. Both of them are level three trained in IFS. Both of them have had long histories of dealing with obsessions and compulsions, and they are Robert Fox and Alessio Rizzo. And I'm drawing from some sources here, including uh, one podcast episode called IFS and Hope with OCD. There, Alessio Rizzo and Robert Fox were, ep- were interviewed by Tammy Solenberger on her podcast, The One Inside, which aired on September 17th, 2021. Also on Annabelle Enrique and Tisha Scholl's show, their podcast called IFS Talks. They had a talk entitled, they had an episode entitled, entitled A Talk with Robert Fox on OCD Types, and that aired on February 20th, 2021. And then there was uh, an article by Ben Bloom, Inside the Revolutionary Treatment That Could Change Psychotherapy Forever, that came out on elemental.medium.com on July 21st, 2020. There was some additional information. And I'm actually going to quote from that article first. Uh, because it gives a little bit of the background about Robert Fox. And it reads, begin quote, Robert Fox, a therapist in Woburn, Massachusetts, also wishes that more people knew about IFS. Diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder at age 21 after a lifetime of unusual compulsions, he spent 23 years receiving the standard care, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, and exposure response prevention, ERP, Neither had much effect, especially ERP, which involved repeatedly exposing himself to things he was anxious about in the hopes of gradually habituating to them. Quote, when you think about it, it's a very painful method of therapy, end quote, he says. Fox discovered IFS in 2008. Before, he had always been encouraged to think of his compulsions as meaningless pathologies. Now, for the first time, they began making sense to him as the behavior of protectors who were trying to manage the underlying shame and fear of exiles. After two particularly powerful unburdenings, his systems abated by 95% and stayed that way. Quote, OCD used to be almost like kryptonite around my neck when I would have serious flare-ups, end quote, he said. Quote, I feel a lot of freedom and peace, and I really owe it to Dick Schwartz and the model. End quote. So when you hear Alessio Rizzo and Robert Fox talk, you hear about their concerns about ERP. ERP doesn't bring the curiosity, says Alessio Rizzo. It doesn't ask the question, why do the obsessions happen in the first place? Obsessions are not irrational, and compulsions are not meaningless. Nothing points back to the underlying causes in conventional OCD diagnosis and medication treatments in ERP. We need to get back to those underlying causes. And what are those underlying causes? Well, Robert Fox points to intense shame that is dissociated away outside of conscious awareness. Shame from childhood that's exiled and carried by parts that are burdened with it, but then also shame that comes from the OCD itself, right? The sarcasm that it can bring up. And Chrissy McDermott 
has a quote that says, begin quote, OCD is like having a bully stuck inside your head and nobody else can see it, end quote. There is so much misunderstanding, so much embarrassment, so much shame around just having OCD. Along with that is often repressed anger. Fox believes that often there was no parent that could witness what the child was experiencing in an attuned way that could help the child process it and work through it. So shame becomes the central thing. And in one of those podcasts, Robert Fox says about his treatment, being, quote, right, I didn't see it myself until one day I was out for a walk with my dog Gizmo around my block, walking around the block with him, and I had been to all these lectures about shame, and I was walking one day, and all of a sudden it was like, it just came to me. Holy, 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 beep. I carry that shame, end quote. And it was like a dark cloud that was overhead and just kind of followed me wherever I went. And it was actually not an awful thing to realize. That's what had been basically walking around on my back for so long. It was this deep shame. So in that moment, Robert Fox realized that what had driven his obsessive compulsive symptoms, his obsessions, his compulsions, the fear around those for all of those decades had been shame. Now, Alessio Rizzo talks about how obsessions and compulsions often develop gradually. Those managers are trying out different roles to try to figure out ways to cope with the underlying intensity of shame and anger and I would argue sometimes grief and also fear. And they try different things, right? All this happens in silence in the inner world of the person. And they come across something that's successful, at least in the short run, in distracting us from the pain that the exiles carry, the shame, the rage, the fear, whatever it is, right, that we are fleeing from at that core level. Robert Fox talks about how that distraction has to be powerful enough to hijack the mind, hijack the mind. It's got to be powerful enough to hijack the mind, or otherwise it's just not going to get away from that underlying shame, uh, that underlying grief, or that underlying loss, or whatever it is that is generating so much concern within our system, especially for our protector parts. On his website, which is therapywithalessio.com, Alessio Rizzo posted on March 3rd, 2021, an article entitled IFS and OCD, a comparison between CBT and IFS for OCD. And that's a really interesting article for those that want to follow up on this a little further. Um, basically, it says that in IFS, all parts are welcome and that parts take on roles that perpetuate this OCD. He refers to them as like OCD parts. There are parts that generate and perpetuate the OCD, and they're doing that for a reason. They're trying to help us 
to be safe. They're trying to help us to be calm. They're trying to create some kind of pseudo homeostasis or stability to allow us to continue functioning. So the main difference, he says, between CBT, which would include ERP, and IFS is the definition of the cure for OCD. CBT therapy, including ERP, has the ultimate goal of empowering the client to overcome OCD thoughts and anxieties by never engaging with them or by using exposure therapy to demonstrate that the OCD fears and obsessions have no evidence in existing. They have no, they've got no evidence to exist. IFS, on the other hand, believes that healing is the result of reorganizing the parts so that the extreme behavior is substituted with more functional ways of thinking and acting. And above all, IFS aims at healing the traumatic events that have led to the development of the OCD symptoms. And this is so important that we get to the core issues, right? The healing of trauma that fuels OCD leads to a spontaneous decrease of OCD anxieties, intrusive thoughts. And this, according to Alessio, is a preferable form of healing. I think it also, at a neurological level, is preferable because what I think is going on here, he, Alessio doesn't get into this on, in his website, but what I think is going on is that we're actually correcting the existing neural network in the brain. We're actually rewiring the brain at a neurochemical, at a neuroelectrical level. We're actually revamping and revising how the brain works with regard to these obsessions and these compulsions. I think in these other models of therapy, what's developing as we lock into combat with the obsessions and compulsions is that we're actually developing an alternative neural network that's superimposed over the original one and attempts to drown it out with greater electrical force, essentially, greater a greater power, right? So there you have two neural networks, one that's suppressed by another one, and that's one of the reasons why uh, ERP has to be continuously re reinforced because if it's not, then the previous neural network may rise to the surface and again bring back the unresolved pattern of, of obsessions leading to anxiety and distress, leading to compulsions, leading to temporary relief, rinse and repeat. So we're actually getting at this uh, at, the, at, a, at a much earlier causal phase within the neurochemistry and neuroelectricity of the brain. So I want to also kind of close with some quotes from Colleen West who is an IMF therapist and a licensed marriage and family therapist from a December 20th post on her website, ColleenWest.com, where she's discussing treating OCD with internal family systems parts work. She says that, quote, treating obsessive and compulsive parts with IFS is diametrically opposed to treating it in the exposure and response prevention, the most commonly recommended approach. IFS treats OCD parts as what they are. Managers and firefighters, they have jobs to do. If you can help the exiles underneath these protectors, there will be less need for the OCD behaviors. IFS does work and I have successfully treated people with full-blown OCD who now have about 5% of their original symptoms only during moments of high stress and they do not consider themselves OCD anymore. ERP works 
to suppress those same protectors that IFS seeks to understand and care for. It does work as people get a strategy for the thoughts that are driving them nuts. But the folks I know who have gone through this treatment find that they have to do their homework forever or the OCD comes back. And they always feel it threatening. In short, it's stressful and the fight is never over. For anyone doing ERP, they have to commit fully to that approach and the homework is hours a day and one cannot be half-hearted about it or it won't work. The good thing about ERP is that it gives people some control, which they strongly desire because they feel so powerless. So... It's important to note that there have not been clinical outcome studies yet done uh, for IFS and obsessive compulsive disorder. Those are yet to be brought forward, but there are a number of clinical anecdotes. I think it's interesting that Colleen West said that, you know, 95% of OCD symptomatology can be relieved. You know, she's seen that in the clients she's worked for. That's consistent with what Robert Fox talked about within his own experience. I think there is great hope for using IFS with folks with obsessions and compulsions. That concurs with my experience. I find it very helpful for dealing with those kinds of symptoms as well. And I would encourage those therapists who are listening to also be able, you know, to also consider bringing in in IFS-informed approaches to working with your clients who struggle with obsessions and compulsions. See if you can get in touch with those parts and begin to connect with them in the therapy work. Now, the next episode will be episode 87. That's going to come out on December 6th, 2022. It's going to be on scrupulosity. And I have such a different take on scrupulosity. Scrupulosity is what happens when perfectionism and OCD come into contact with religion. There are spiritual and psychological elements to that. So in the last episode, episode 85, we really got into understanding perfectionism. In this episode, we worked on really getting to understand obsessions and compulsions and what drives them. In the next episode, we're going to get much more into scrupulosity. And we'll also discuss my own battle with scrupulosity uh, as well. Now remember, as a listener to this podcast, you can call me on my cell any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I've set that aside for you eight hours each month, 317-567-9594. 317-567-9594. That's my cell phone number. You call me. I'll pick up the, I'll pick up the phone if I'm not on the, on the line with anybody else. If you can't reach me because I'm on the call with somebody else, leave a voicemail. I'll call you back. You can also email me. You can also email me at crisis at soulsandhearts.com. The Resilient Catholics Community. Now, I talked a lot about the Resilient Catholics Community in episode 84, two episodes ago. We have 106 people on the waiting list for the RCC right now. We are reopening the community on December 1st for those who are on the waiting list. You can learn a lot about the RCC and you can sign up at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. That's the landing page where you can find out all about what's happening within the RCC. We've got heavy demand for folks that really want to enter into this pilgrimage around their human formation. The response to the uh, individualized result sheets and the personalized human formation plans that we've been doing as a result of the uh, initial measures kits have been really, really interesting. 
where we, we usually are identifying uh, hypothetical parts, somewhere between 8 and 12, usually you know, parts, that, and how they interact within a person. We've got some, some measures that give us some, some, some uh, data to speculate about that sort of stuff. It's been really interesting for folks, helping them un to understand themselves better, and it's been really eye-opening for a lot of our, our incoming members from the, from the last cohort. So... I am actually clearing out space to be able to give that personal attention to, to people coming in, in in the December cohort. I'm also hiring some, some, some people to help me with that, to help me write those reports. Uh, I'm not sure that we'll be able to take everybody in, but we are working on being able to do that. So if you're interested, make sure you get on that waiting list because we will be looking at the order in which people are on that waiting list and the order in which they register once registration opens. That will be at noon Eastern time on December 1st. And then finally, I want you to pray for me. I want you to pray for me, especially that I be childlike in my trust of our Lord and our Lady, that I be childlike in the trust for, you know, moving forward with the resilient Catholics community, with the interior therapist community, with souls and hearts more broadly, with this particular podcast. You ask also that you pray for humility for me uh, and for, and that I do what God wills with these podcasts and with the community. So I'm really going to ask you for that. Please pray for me. I pray for all of my listeners as well. And with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Thank you.